Good morning. I greet you in the name of the Lord. Welcome you on this Lord's Day Sabbath. As we continue our study through the book of Genesis, we are in Genesis chapter 10 this morning. This is the word of the Lord, Genesis chapter 10. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, or Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magi, or Magog, Madai, Joven, Tubal, Meshech, and Tyrus. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Riphath, and Togomar. The sons of Joven, Elisha, Tarshish, Ketim, Dodanim. From these, the coastland peoples spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans, in their nations. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Sheba, Havilah, Sapta, Rama, and Septica. The sons of Rama, Sheba, and Dedan. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on the earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, and Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. From that land, he went into Assyria, built Nineveh and Rehoboth, Ir, Kalah, and resin between Nineveh and Kalah. That is the great city. That is the great city. Egypt fathered Ludim, Amnim, Lebanim, and Nabathim, or Naphtuhim, Pasarim, and Kashlim, from whom the Philistines came, and Kaporith, or Katorim. Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn Heth, and the Jebusites, and the Amorites, and the Girgashites, and the Havites, and the Archites, and the Sinites, and the Arvidites, and the Zamorites, and the Hamathites. Afterward, afterward, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed, and the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon to the direction of Gerar, as far as Gaza, in, in and in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboim, as far as Lasha. These are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. To Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born. The sons of Shem, Elam, Ashur, Arpashad, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram, Uz, Hul, Gether, and Mash. Arpashad fathered Shelah, and Shelah fathered Eber. And to Eber were born two sons. The name of one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided. And his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan fathered Al- Almodad, Shelef, and Hazarmabeth, Jerah, Hadaram, Uxal, Dikla, Obel, Abimiel, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. All these were the sons of Joktan. The territory in which they lived extended from Misha in the direction of Shephar to the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. These are the clans of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies in their nations. And from these, the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. Have a great day. See you next Lord's Day. No, please be seated. (laughs) Please be seated. 
Amen. The last time that we gathered to consider the book of Genesis, we examined verses 18 to 28 of chapter 9. In those verses, we learned that Noah was not the promised seed of Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. Noah, as we said last week, was not the new Adam of the new creation. Just as Adam fell and sinned against God, so also Noah fell and sinned against God. By the grace of God, Noah and his family had survived the flood. The waters of the worldwide flood have subsided and the earth was now dry. The warnings from God have all but passed. And it may have seemed like there were no more tests for Noah to pass. But the greatest test of Noah's life was about to begin. What was that test? That test was, listen to this, that test was and is desperately seeking communion with God. Even when everything in your life appears to be stable. Desperately seeking communion with God, even when it appears as though everything in your life is well. Do you know that test? There are no troubles in your life. There are no problems in your life. It seems that all of the waters are calm or all but dry. And trying to maintain a desperate desire to commune with God. Because when do we most often desire to commune with God? When there is trouble in our lives. But the great test is seeking after God, communing with God, earnestly desiring God when all is well. Noah, in the times of peace let down his guard and fell to the fruit of the vine in his vineyard. The worldwide flood did not do away with sin. God did not judge the earth through the waters to eliminate sin. You know that? And how do we know this? What is our first piece of evidence that we know that sin has not been destroyed? Our first piece of evidence that sin has not been destroyed is found in the one who was righteous. Noah. The righteous Noah who knew God, walked with God, is our first example of the fact that sin has not been destroyed. Of all the people in all of the earth, God uses Noah to first show us sin is still very much alive. Noah lay naked in his tent, exposed in his shame. Noah's fall is used to reveal that Noah was not the long-awaited, skull-crushing seed of the woman. Noah would not be the rest giver. We are not to, as the scriptures are teaching us, we are not to look to Noah, but we are to look to the one that Noah looked to, the Lord Jesus Christ. Scripture that begins to, to reveal to us or to reveal the, the seeds of the serpent as Noah's youngest son, Ham, sees the opportunity to look upon his father's sinful, drunken shame. 
Rather than cover his father's shame, Ham sought to further expose his father's sinful shame by telling his brothers, come take a look at our shameful father. Ham broke the fifth commandment in dishonoring his father and received a prophetic curse from God through his father, Noah. Just as Ham, the youngest son, was a seed of the serpent, so also Ham's youngest son, Canaan, would be a seed of the serpent, and he would serve his brothers. The other two sons of Noah, Shem and Japheth, they acted righteously toward their father and covered his shame, not allowing their eyes to even look upon their father's nakedness. They reveal that they were of their father's faith. They reveal in their action that they believe the gospel that Noah preached and responded obediently by honoring their father and covering his shame. And we learn that this pointed to the covering that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ, who covers us or clothes us in his righteousness so that the father does not see us clothed in our sin, but clothed in Christ. And the ninth chapter ends with Genesis nine twenty eight. Noah lived 350 years after the flood. So all the days of Noah were 950 years and he died. And now scripture is going to make a transition this morning. As we go into the 10th chapter, we are going to see with God's help, the table of nations or consider the table of nations. And I have for you just three and they are going to be short points this morning, shorter than usual. Number one. God is sovereign over the nations. Number one, God is sovereign over the nations. Verse one of chapter 10. Now these are the records of the generations of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, or Japheth, the sons of Noah. The sons were born and sons were born to them after the flood. As we come to this 10th chapter, we enter a new section in the scriptures. The scriptures are, this is important, making a transition. How do we know scriptures are making a transition? We know this because of the way the chapter begins. It begins with a familiar saying, these are the generations. We've heard that before. We've seen this kind of language before in God's word. We've seen it first in Genesis chapter 2, where God transitions from the story of his creative work to the story of his providential work. We see the word Genesis chapter two and verse four. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day the Lord God made the heavens and the earth or the earth and the heavens. We see this transition again in chapter five, verse one. What does it say? This is the book of the generations of Adam. Scripture now focuses on Adam's line. Genesis chapter six and verse nine. These are the generations of Noah. Scripture is making the transition now to focus on Noah's family line. We'll see this again. Genesis chapter 11 and verse 10. These are the records of the, gener- of the generations of Shem. Scripture will focus on Shem's line. We'll see it again in Genesis chapter 11 and verse 27. These are the records of the generations of Terah or Terah. Terah will focus then for the rest of the scriptures on the generations of or the descendants of Abraham. Scripture is focusing, shifting our attention from one family to another, right? In each of these instances and others that will come later, God is making transitions in his word. He's shifting his focus from one family to another. 
But even though God is making shifts from families, God is not making a shift in his ultimate scope. Does that make sense? Meaning, even though there are going to be a number of shifts and transitions of focus from, say, the family of Adam to the family of Noah or from the family of Abraham to the family of Jacob, Christ is always the central focus of the scriptures. Got that? Do you know that the Old Testament is not a Jewish-centered book? The Old Testament is a Messianic-centered book. The Old Testament is a Christ-centered book. The Old Testament is a skull-crushing seed of the woman-centered book. So although we are going to make different shifts here and there, Christ is ultimately the scope of Scripture. Amen. This chapter, although it is difficult to understand, listen is helping to push forward and progress the arrival of the Messiah. This is not an insignificant chapter. This is admittedly a difficult chapter, and especially a difficult chapter to preach, but it's not an insignificant chapter. When you're reading the Bibles, it's not the Bible, it's not a chapter, you say, I'm not reading that chapter, let's go to chapter 11. It is one with difficult names, and it is one with people that are difficult to trace, But is it not God's word? And if it is God's word, it's here for a reason. Therefore, it should not be skipped or ignored. Again, why? Because it helps to progress, to push along the promises of God in bringing forth the skull-crushing seed of the woman. So then our challenge is, how does this fit into the rest of Scripture? That's our challenge. Once again, Scripture is making a transition. It's turning from the story of Noah who has died and now turning its attention on those who have come after Noah, the descendants of Noah. Verse 1 again. Now these are the records of the generations of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the sons of Noah. I can't decide whether I'm going to say Japheth or Japheth. Anyway, Japheth. Uh, The sons were born to them after the flood. The Scriptures introduce this table with Shem first. Why Shem? Why Shem mentioned first in, in now these are the records of generations of Shem? What did Shem do in the last chapter? He covered his father, right? What does Noah say about Shem? Blessed be Shem, right? But why? Because he worships God. In the last chapter, we saw that Shem is of the righteous line. Shem is the one through whom the Messiah will come. Therefore, Shem is mentioned first because he is the one through which the righteous seed will come, right? The Messiah will come. And he will come through the line of Shem. Then we get to the description of the nations and it begins with Japheth. Why? Because Japheth and his descendants will be the most remote peoples to live away from those of Israel or the Hebrews. They will live furthest away from the Hebrews. They will live on the coastlands. They will be in the future the Indo-European nations. Those who live in India, Asia, and Europe. So the scriptures begin with Japheth because, number one, he is the oldest. But secondly, his peoples will be those who live furthest away from the Hebrews. Ham's descendants are mentioned next. Ham is the youngest, but Ham will be mentioned next. And then Shem 
Because Shem and his descendants will be the focus for the rest of the scriptures of Genesis. And actually the rest of the Bible for that matter. Are we all together? At first glance, it would appear that we are given a list of children that are from Noah. But it's more than that. It's, as I said before, a table of nations and ethnic groups of the world. Uh, Just like you're reading a, a table of contents in a book, this 10th chapter is a table of nations. It's not a genealogy. It may appear to be a genealogy, but it's not exhaustive. Therefore, it's not a genealogy. When we read of the genealogies in the fourth and fifth chapters of Genesis, we are witnessing the unfolding of God's promise of Genesis chapter three and verse 15, that there would come, there would be enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And then we see this development in the divisions of the Sethites, those born of Adam and Eve, Sethites, right? The righteous seed of the woman. And the Canaanites, not the Canaanites, but the Canaanites, the son of Adam and Eve, Cain. They are the unrighteous seeds of the serpent. In Genesis 4 and 5, and here, although this is not a genealogy, something similar is taking place. We are seeing the development in God's economy of the division of nations. That there are lines that are being drawn And they are being drawn by God. It's once again the tale of two seeds. But now the the, the seeds are becoming a little bit harder to follow and trace. But yet that is still what's taking place. These nations will be significant players in the plan of God. And when we encounter them later, we're seeing them now. And as we read them, they don't make much sense to us. But we will encounter them later and then they will make much more sense to us of why they're being mentioned. Almost like when you're watching a movie and the camera will pan on a specific person, stay on that person for a moment, not really give you any information about that person and then just move on. And you think, what was that about? Why was that person focused on? Why was that person even mentioned? And then you come later to the end of the movie and say, oh, now it makes so much more sense why the, the, the movie did that in the beginning. These nations that we see now, they don't make much sense now. But when we get to them later, you'll say, ah, now it makes sense. Keep that in mind. Because something similar to that will take place as we progress through the scriptures. We'll begin to see how this makes more sense. But listen to this. We are not the first audience. We talked about that last week. So although when we read this table of nations, we say, Don't know that name, don't care about it. Can't pronounce that name, doesn't make sense to me. The first audience who heard this, for them it was an epiphany. For them it was a revelation, if you will. And this is what I mean. For us, many of these unpronounceable and untraceable names were not unpronounceable or untraceable for the first Hebrews who first received this book. Does that make sense? We may read these names and doze off. But when the Hebrew heard Ketem in verse 4, he said, Cyprus. When the Hebrew heard Cush and Misraim, they said Ethiopia. And the place of slavery that we have just left. Egypt. Misraim is Egypt. When they see Sheba, they say Arabia. When they see Assyria... They say, that's the great power that is rising right now, Assyria. When they see Canaan, they see the land that has been promised to them. 
There is Nineveh. You know Nineveh. It's the place from which Jonah ran or ran from, right? There is Kashlaim, which will become the Philistines. There is Sodom and Gomorrah. And amidst these, there is 70 nations. Amidst, amidst these 70 nations, there is Shem. And the Hebrews would know Shem. Why? Because they were the Semites. They were the Shem or Semites. So they are seeing the roots of all of the, the, the nations and all of the struggles that are going on around them. They are seeing the roots of all of these things. And as they read this table of nations, they would have been encouraged by this point, our first point. That God is sovereign over all of these nations. God is the God of history. This is not mythology. God is working out his plans in time and space. God is working out his plan in history and among all the peoples of all the world. There are 70 nations in the table of nations. 70 nations that are multiplying under God's providence. And although this table of nations is not an exhaustive table, meaning it doesn't name all of the nations, all of the nations derive from these peoples or from these nations. 70 nations. Why 70? Why 70? Think about that. Why 70? Did you know that Japheth had 70 sons or seven sons? And then Japheth has seven grandsons. There are seven descendants of Cush, seven descendants of Misraim. Seven, 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 on and on and on. Seven is what in the Bible? It's a number of perfection. Do you know that in the Hebrew mind, 10 is also the number of perfection? Me and Pastor John had to talk about this a while back, but 10 is also the number of perfection, which is why you are to give 10%. Therefore, 70 would be a heightened or elevated perfection. 70 would point to the completeness of God's providential plans. The world was therefore not out of control. On the contrary, keep in mind 70, all nations were in the palm of God's hand. All that Israel had experienced and all that was taking place in the world was, all that was taking place in the world that was and in the world that is today is being guided by the sovereign hand of God. There is no nation that was or is outside of the rule of God's sovereignty. This is encouraging to Israel. Because what is taking place in their lives at that particular moment when this was being written? They are wandering. They are wandering in the desert. This was encouraging to Israel who knew that They were not being guided by the staff of Moses. They were being guided by the mighty hand, sovereign hand of God. And this was a good reminder to them each time they complained to Moses. Have you brought us out into the desert to starve us? That no, God was in control. That God was guiding and leading them. And not only they, but all the nations of the world. So then when they were tempted to fear... When they were tempted to fret, they could take courage in knowing that God is sovereign over the nations and that he perfectly orders their destinies. The Bible says in the book of Psalm 2, chapter 1, Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? 
The kings of the earth take their stands and the rulers take counsel, counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. But listen to God's response. He who sits in the heavens laughs and scoffs at them. There is no person nor nation that operates outside of the will of God. There is nothing that we can do to thwart the plans of God or to alter the plans of God. God is in control. The Bible says in Job chapter 12 and verse 23, he makes nations great. He destroys them. He enlarges them. He leads them away. Therefore, let us not be moved by what we read or what we hear in the daily news. Let us simply pray that the will of God be done. Stand against the evils that rise up around us, but realize that they are not outside of the control and sovereignty of God. God is sovereign over all nations. Number two. God sovereignly allows nations to prosper. That's all of the 10th chapter. I'm not going to read it all for you. God sovereignly allows nations to prosper. Listen to this, brothers and sisters. When we read the table of nations, we see the roots of what will become some of the most powerful nations to ever rule on the face of the earth. Uh, I'm not going to name them all, but just to name a few, we will see the roots of what will become the great Egyptian nation in Misraim. We see the roots of what will become of Cush, of what will become Ethiopia, another great nation. We see the roots of the great powers like Assyria and Persia. Persia being one of the great nations found in Daniel's vision. We see the roots of the Philistine nation in the Pathurim. The Philistines who will war against the nation of Israel all the way to the time of David. We see the roots of wicked Sodom and Gomorrah. We see the roots of the roots and rise of Nineveh. And we also see the roots and rise of Babylon. And Babylon will be a constant reference in the scriptures all the way to the book of Revelation. Brothers and sisters, many of these nations, if not all of them that were referenced, will in some way enslave or be hostile toward Israel. And yet these nations, though they are uh, being hostile toward Israel, though they will enslave Israel in some kind of way, these nations, they thrive and they prosper. These nations were not known for their worship and devotion to God. These nations were known for their violence, their immorality, their idolatry. And yet, they prosper. And yet, they flourish even as ungodly nations. In the midst of this 10th chapter, there is a short but intentional example of the wicked who prosper in spite of their wickedness. Look at verse 8. Please look at verse 8. Now, Cush became the father of Nimrod. He became a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord, the beginning of his kingdom was Babel and Erech and Akkad and Kalneh in the land of Shinar. When our eyes first glance over these verses, we could be misled into believing that Nimrod was some kind of mythical hero of old. That he was like Achilles or Robin Hood. And that's because we see the scriptures say that he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. But Nimrod was not a hunter 
of wild game or animals. Nimrod was a hunter of men. The Septuagint, the earliest Greek translation of the Hebrew text, makes it clear that when the scriptures speak of Nimrod's hunting, it speaks of, it is speaking of Nimrod's thirst, bloodthirst for power. And he achieves power by hunting men. He seeks to gain power through violence. And through violence, Nimrod gains his throne and establishes his rule over the nations by hunting men. By taking over nations. Nimrod, whose name means, let us rebel. Is possibly the youngest son of Cush. Nimrod, let us rebel, is the founder of Babel. Which will become Babylon. And the main influence in leading the people to rebel and do what? Construct a tower. A tower of what? A tower of glory and praise to who? To men. To men's strength. To men's ingenuity. To men's power. Nimrod leads the nations in rebellion. And he does so through violence. And Nimrod, as the Bible says, does all of this before the Lord. Now, we may be be tempted to think that Before the Lord means that he was a worshiper of the Lord. But it's just the opposite. Nimrod is a rebel against God or before God. He does all that he does with no regard to God. He goes on to build and establish Assyria, Nineveh, Rehoboth, Kalah, all nations known for their rebellion against God. And he does it before the Lord. The Lord observed with his ever-seeing eye, Nimrod's, listen, Blatant rebellion and disregard for God and his commands. Nimrod does so openly without any fear of God before his eyes. He does it before the Lord. He was no hero. He was a villain of villains. And yet he prospered. And yet he rose nations. He built nations that flourished in spite of the rebellion and refusal to worship the one true God. How is that possible? How is it possible? And you may ask that sometimes when you are among your work people or or in the world and seeing people who do not acknowledge God. And here you are acknowledging God. They are prospering and you are not. How is this possible? As I said over and over again, we must not disconnect that which we have already learned from that which we are presently learning. These chapters are not disconnected from one another. So in order to answer the difficult questions like, how, why do the wicked prosper? In spite of the rebellion, we must go back to what we've already learned. Not just the context of this text that is before us, but realize that the context of this text is the context of every text. You must allow Scripture to interpret Scripture for you by using your life application Bible. By using scripture. Who is the only perfect, infallible interpreter of God's word? Who? Class. The Holy Spirit. In his word. The only infallible interpreter of God's word is the Holy Spirit on God's word. Notice how I said the Holy Spirit on God's word. Not just the Holy Spirit. Why did I say that? 
Because we can say the Holy Spirit's telling me. Remember how some of y'all used to do. But the Holy Spirit on God's word. So when we look for what does God mean when God says what he says in his word, we go to God's word. Because God's word or the Holy Spirit is the only perfect interpreter of what God has said in his word. So then how is prospering possible? God tells us. Go to Genesis chapter 9 and verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. What's happening in chapter 10? Man is doing exactly what they've been blessed to do. They are multiplying in number. They are being fruitful on the earth. They are multiplying. Man did not stay in his tent. Man is building cultures. Man is building nations just as God blessed man to do. Remember that blessing was not a a blessing of regeneration. It was not a blessing of now you're saved. It's a blessing of go, fill the earth, build. And man's doing that. So we cannot be surprised that the nations are thriving because that's exactly what God has commanded and blessed them to do. Yes, but how are they able to flourish even though they rebel against God and don't acknowledge him in all their ways? How could the Lord allow them to persist and thrive? Again, we are not the first to answer that question. God in his infinite wisdom has given us solace in his word, but also answers in his word. Genesis chapter 9 and verse 11, I will establish my covenant with you and all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood. Neither shall there ever again be a flood to destroy the earth. How are the nations allowed to, to, to thrive without being destroyed? How are sinners who are living around you, who are coming to work, telling you about their sinful escapades over the weekend, how are they not struck down? Because God has promised that he will preserve the earth. That's why. They are, listen to this, this, they are wicked. And they are enjoying, I wrote this in parentheses, temporary fruits of God's promise of preservation. It's temporary. And they are enjoying the temporary fruits of God's promise to preserve the earth. They, though they are wicked and sinful, are enjoying the temporary benefits, temporary, of prospering on the earth while they yet have life. But it won't last. God is allowing this. And we may often believe that God is blind to the evil, but God sees and the wicked The sins of the wicked will not go unpunished. We must not allow this to cause us to stumble, though. Listen to the psalmist. And let's actually turn there. Psalm 73. This was of great encouragement as I was studying last night for me. Psalm 73. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. Why? For I was envious of the arrogant. As I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death and their body is fat. They are not in trouble as other men. Nor are they plagued like mankind. 
Therefore, pride is their necklace. Their garment of violence covers them. Their eyes bulges from fatness. The imagination of their heart runs riot, run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They've set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue parades through the earth. Therefore, his people return to this place and the waters of abundance are drunk by them. They say, how does God know? And is there and is their knowledge with the most high? Behold, these are the wicked and always at ease. They have increased in wealth. Surely in vain, I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands of innocence. Do you see what he's saying? I see all of the prosperity and the goodness that the wicked are enjoying. And I'm saying, am I keeping God's commands in vain? Is this really worth it? Because it seems like they are mostly enjoying life and I am mostly afflicted in life. And yet God is my God. They do not worship or acknowledge God. And yet they seem to be enjoying all of the fruits that God has provided in this life. The psalmist said, I said to myself, this was my, this was his, his temptation to stumble. I've kept the, I've kept my heart pure in vain. I've, I've, Wash my hands in innocence, for I've been stricken all day and chastened every morning. This is my lot in life. This doesn't seem to be fair. If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would be, I would have betrayed the children, the generation of your children. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight until I came. Listen to what he said. Until I came to the sanctuary of God. Till I came into the house of the Lord. And then it all makes sense. When I am mingling amongst the wicked, it seems as though life is not fair and as though I have been given the worst in life and they the best. But all made sense to me when? When I came into the sanctuary of God. Then I perceived their end. Then it made sense to me. Surely you have set them in slippery places. You have cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and arrogant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel, you will guide me and afterward receive me to glory Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord my refuge that I may tell of all your works. There is some prophecy of Christ in there, so I don't want to over over apply these things to us. But there is some things that are very much applicable to us. We may look at the apparent ease and prosperity of the wicked, but we must not lose sight of our treasure. Psalm 73, 25, who have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. Did you hear that? My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart. I don't want what they have. Why? Because they don't have you. 
And if they don't have you, then they don't have anything. I have you, therefore I have everything. Even if my flesh wastes away and my heart stops beating, God is my strength. God is my portion. The wicked may temporarily thrive, but God is just. No sin from the wicked will go unpunished. And those who trust in the Lord, what does the Bible say? Shall never be put to shame. This 10th chapter was once again reminding us that God is in control even when the wicked prosper. Though his ways be mysterious to feeble minds and feeble creatures like us, he has made himself and his purposes known in his holy word. You, the people of God, shall not be put to shame and you will inherit more than what you see the wicked inheriting in this temporal life. And your inheritance will be eternal. Amen. Third and finally. The progressing, the progressing promise among the nations. The progressing promise among the nations. This is Genesis chapter 10 verses 21 through 31. I'm not going to read that. The nations that descend from Shem are 26 nations. Now you're going to have to follow me close as we conclude. They come last because they are the focus. They are the promise. They are of the promised seed and they shall be the focus for the rest of the Bible. Again, this is a transition chapter from the broad description of the nations to the more narrowed focus of the righteous line that will usher in the coming of the Messiah. After the dispersing of the nations that we will see in chapter 11 at Babel, God will shift his focus to Abraham and his descendants in chapter 12. The covenant that God is going to make with Abraham in the 17th chapter will be made on the backdrop, listen, of the nations that we find divided or even united and then divided in chapter 11. You hearing me? We shall see that these nations will be scattered. They will be separated by language, culture, and worship. But in chapter 17, God makes a promise to Abraham that through his seed, all the nations will be blessed. You following along? God will provide or prom- God will promise that the people of Abraham will be as many as the stars in the sky. And we will find that his grandson, Jacob, will have 70 descendants. Abraham's grandson, Jacob, will have 70 descendants. They are recognized as the people of God. Why is that important? Because in chapter 10, we see the nations united. In chapter 11, those nations will be divided. But God still has a perfect remnant preserved for himself. He has preserved a nation for his glory. It is Israel. They will endure despite persecution. They will endure despite enslavement and opposition. They will endure despite exile and sin and so on. The gates of hell will not overcome or destroy her. She will be preserved because there is a promise to be fulfilled, right? Genesis 3.15. The scope is still focused here. And he, that, that promise will come through Israel. It, and, and, and come to pass, it does. John 1.14. The word became flesh. The seed has come and dwelt among us. We saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out, saying, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. Christ appears. Christ appears. Christ preaches repentance. Christ preaches 
the kingdom of God has arrived. He heals the sick, raises the dead. Christ fulfills all that was spoken of him and then calls men to follow him. And men come. Men come, follow Christ. And then Christ does something peculiar in Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10 verse 1. Now after this, the Lord appointed 70. This is Christ. Others. And what does he do? He sent them in pairs ahead of him to every city and place where he himself was going to come. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful. Look at the nations. They are out there. But the laborers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go. In the 10th chapter of Genesis, the table of nations is described. They are united. In the 11th chapter, they are divided. Dispersed by God. And they remain divided, but God has a remnant. The church, 70 descendants from Jacob. They will be the light of God in this wicked earth. He will preserve them and through them will come the Messiah. There was a promise that through Abraham, the nations would be blessed because through Abraham would come a seed. Through his seed, he would be the father of nations. That seed is in trace of the scriptures revealed to be Christ. He is God in the flesh. Christ comes, preaches, calls men to follow him. They do. He sends out 70. And what does he go to tell them to do when he, when he sends them out? Go to the nations. Go to those who have been dispersed. Go to those who have been divided. Prepare the nations for his coming. Go and tell others of their need to repent and place their faith in Christ. Go and tell them that there is no other name under heaven by which men can be saved but the name of Christ. Christ actively obeys the law of God. Christ passively submits to death. Christ powerfully raises from the dead. Christ conquers sin, death, and the grave. He then appears to his disciples and commissions his disciples to do what in Matthew 28? Go and make disciples. Of what? Of all nations. And then in Acts chapter 2, we see the disciples gathering, praying. As they're getting ready to go to the nations, and the Holy Spirit comes upon them in a unique way. They begin to speak the wonders of God in tongues or languages of other nations. And these other nations hear them. And who are these nations? Go to Acts chapter 2 and verse 7. Acts chapter 2 and verse 7. Am I preaching Tower of Babel right now? Acts chapter 2 and verse 7. Let me just say verse 6. No, let me just start in verse 5. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. That's intentional. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that, that, that we hear each of them in our own language to which we were born? Listen to the names Parthians. Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Perga, Pamphylia, Egypt, districts of Libya, Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them in our own tongue speaking of the mighty deeds of God. And they all continued in amazement and perplexity, great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others were mocking. What is this? 
Listen, who are these people? They are the nations that were mentioned in Genesis chapter 10. They are descendants of the nations who were mentioned in Genesis chapter 10. They are, are nations that were dispersed under and, and now under the umbrella of the gospel are being brought together by the power of the Holy Spirit. They, they are being gathered into the tent of Shem. Remember that? That's what God's promise is. May God enlarge the, the, the tent or the, the, the tent of Javed. May he dwell in the tent with Shem. They are believing the gospel. They are turning to Christ. And what does all of that point to? Go to Revelation chapter 7. And verse 9. Last book of the Bible. Revelation chapter 7 and verse 9. After these things I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could count from every nation. And all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches, were in their hands. And they were crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. And all that and all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they on, fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power be and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. The nations have gathered. All the nations. So in the beginning of Genesis chapter 10, we see these names and we say, what are they there for? And there are 70. And we see that God is preserving a 70. And then Christ sends out a 70. And then those who Christ sends out goes and preaches and the 70 come in. We now see what they were there for. Because God has drawn, dispersed them and God has brought them back. God has always been concerned for the nations. For the nations. God's design was to work through Israel. To bring the Messiah. And then send the church back unto the nations to bring them in. They were dispersed to rebellion at Babel. And they shall be brought in by the laborers of Christ who are equipped with the gospel. He calls every nation, tribe, and tongue. Abraham shall be the father of many nations. Although this is not random, it's intentional. The table of nations are fulfilling God's promise of God's kingdom. And also describing for us the war between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. The seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. This is what the Bible is all about. It's a Christ-centered book. We see the table of nations, it's not intended, though it is, it's not intended to be primarily historical. It's primarily theological. We see this and say that's great history. Not intended to be, although it is. God is communicating something to us about his great plan. This is theological. God is fulfilling his plans and purposes in the world. And this should be of great encouragement to us. And now he is preserving the nations. Preserving the world so that those who are his may come in and Christ may bring all things to consummation. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, come. I heard a pastor say, I think it was Pastor Isaiah actually, that there's a pastor who says, I I don't like saying Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, come because I've got unbelieving family and friends who still need to come to Christ. Let us be diligent in sharing the gospel with them then. Let's pray.